I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm the Executive Director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute, and welcome to this edition of Technology Horizons. Um, my guest today is, is, a, is an individual who certainly no, needs no introduction um, within the defense industrial community, um, and, and that is Craig Mundy. Um, and Craig right now is the president of Mundy and Associates. Um, it's an organization that counsels CEOs on strategic issues, um, focusing on rapidly evolving information technologies. And that's everything from corporate uh, and technology strategies to techno geopolitics, cybersecurity, and R&D management. Um, I think Craig is best known uh, for his work at Microsoft. He had a 22-year career there. Uh, during that time, um, he served as a senior advisor to the CEO. Uh, Chief Research and Strategy Officer starting in 2007. His responsibilities included oversight of uh, Microsoft Research, Intellectual Property Strategy, Technology Policy, Trustworthy Computing, and, and various technology and product incubation activities. Um, also, for the past 15 years, Craig was uh, Microsoft's Principal Technology Policy Liaison to many uh, governments worldwide, um, and, and really a special emphasis on China as well. So, so that may be an interesting part of our conversation today. Um, now, Craig has spent his entire career working with startup activities, uh, spanning some really diverse fields, software, mini computing, supercomputing, uh, consumer electronics, and healthcare. Um, he originally joined Microsoft to develop non-PC software platform technologies and after he departed uh, as a CEO from Alliant Computer Systems, which he co-founded in 1982 and took took public in 1987. Um, uh, Craig serves on the boards, boards of directors for, for a number of, of companies, uh, 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 including in, in the healthcare sector. Um, he's on advisory boards uh, for, for also a, a long list of companies. Um, I, I first got to meet Craig when, uh, when, when uh, I was uh, uh, involved in an organization that supported the President's Council of Advisors in Science Technology. And Craig was appointed to, to that organization, PCAST, uh, in 2009. And has continued to serve, and and I can say one one of the pleasures of my role, I, I ran the organization that did the research support to the Office of Science Technology Policy, so I, I got to sit in on all the PCAST meetings, and it was always a pleasure to, to to listen to Craig and 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 benefit from his wisdom as he was providing the input to to the White House. So so again, Craig, thank you thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, Mark, it, it's good to be here. Thank you. So if I can, I wanted, I wanted to dive right in. Um, you know, you've, you've had a long history of working uh, with both the national security community, uh, commercial industry, the intelligence community, but also the university community. And, and, and you know, th those communities have put a lot of effort in trying to connect the Pentagon and the intelligence community to Silicon Valley. And, and I'm, what, could you start, tell us, tell us your assessment of, of how, that has, how that has worked what has worked, what hasn't worked, and 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 how we how we could proceed, go go forward in the future. Well, I think I think it's it's labored <laughs> against that goal uh, and has not been super successful. I think as time goes on, um, it's been forced uh, the defense industrial base broadly uh, and the you know the the key agencies in the government have been forced to to look harder for a way to collaborate with the businesses and, and universities in these other areas, simply because a higher and higher percentage of the inventions, you know, are coming from uh, either around the world or outside the investment, you know, that, that the government has often made for defense purposes. And so I think that there's an inversion uh, in uh, the way many important or I'll say things that are, are national security interests 
have, have evolved. Um, in the past, many things were developed for defense purposes through defense funding and, and things like DARPA and government contracts in the universities. But as a percentage of all the funding that, that people get these days, uh, you know, a smaller and smaller percentage of that comes from that. I think one of the other things that's challenging is the world has become more globalized. You know, the, the broad academic enterprise is pretty globalized. Hopefully it'll stay that way, although it's been a little more challenging in the last few years. Uh, but uh, that also has created a problem for people in the defense, uh, intelligence, and security sectors because the, those people all aren't U.S. citizens. And so one of the things that characterizes the defense industrial base is they're all U.S. citizens. And, you know, so it's a very homogeneous uh, group of people for the most part. Uh, and there's a necessary separation between what happens in that environment and what happens in the much more open environment. You know, this is particularly problematic at times. I mean, one of the things that I started at Microsoft and the one thing I still uh, actively work on with them is quantum computing. And, you know, this is a very long-term research effort, uh, but when Microsoft assembled its program, you know, strictly out of its own funding uh, and without either government funding on the academic side or on the, on the uh, in, uh, defense side, the, uh, we, you know, we ended up with labs in seven different countries uh, because, you know, we went to hire the best people who were experts in these key underpinning disciplines. And that's easy as a multinational company to do, but it's very difficult if you're the defense industrial base to do. And so uh, at a time where the U.S. has struggled uh, really since 9-11 uh, to continue to attract the world's smartest people, to not just to come to school here, but to stay here uh, and even become citizens here, you know, that has further constrained this. And so I think it's going to continue to be a challenge to get these to come together. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I've often observed that, well, the United States has about 5% of the world's population. So to first order, yeah. I'd say we only have about 5% no, of the smart if you, people. If you assume that, so, you know, so we need to leverage the rest of the people world. People are <laughs> evenly distributed in the gene pool. You know, then, uh, you know, if you look at India or China, yeah. just by the numbers then for every super smart person that, you know, grew up here, you know, there's five of them there. And, and the question is, they may not yield as many of them because of other constraints, but those constraints you know, are being eliminated as, as academic capability increases and uh, the ability to use technology to identify all those people within a very large population gets better and better too. So I, I think the U.S. is seeing that and as we've become less attractive for those people to come here or less necessary for them to either come here or stay here, you know, I think it's definitely going to crimp the ability for particularly the U.S. government and the defense base here to to attract those people. Yeah, I I would often encounter people in the defense community, and as I say, well-meaning, patriotic Americans whose solution to some of our issues is, you know, shut the doors, close the gates, don't let foreign students, for example, in the U.S. And my own take on it was that would be a dreadful idea. <laughs> the time we need to worry is when they stop coming, not yeah, when they... But it's been more than 20 years um, since we sort of closed the gates quite a bit. You know, and, and then, you know, as as the issues yeah. with China uh, and the intellectual property issues got bigger and bigger, 
and of course now you have you know this catastrophe with uh, Russia and Ukraine and sort of the geopolitics around that you know I think that it's going to get harder not easier yeah agreed agreed without without maybe calling out specific names but um, you know the department has made various attempts to reach out to the broader research community you know, organizations like the Defense Innovation Unit, AFWorks, for example, uh, each of the services is making making efforts. A any any sense of on, on those on those activities, what's worked, what hasn't worked? You know, I'm I'm not really too good a commentator on those because a lot of that has has really started to get some momentum or investment since the time where I left Microsoft on a full time basis, which is eight years ago. Uh, and uh, and so you know my own personal intersection with a lot of those programs is very limited, so I I can't tell you I think it's working well or not working well, but I think it still always will struggle to overcome the things we just talked about, which is right, right. the desire you know to to control uh, you know companies that make big investments in these things oftentimes worry that it. If the U.S. government interest decides it's super important, that they'll want to somehow constrain the ability of those companies to use it commercially, and I think that you know that that tension between uh, commercial applications uh, and international deployments and U.S. applications, you see this in many areas of computing in general, whether it's image recognition or high-performance computing, I mean, you know, the list is almost endless now, where everything is dual use. You know, that's one of the speeches that I give to people is that, you know, a huge percentage of things that start life in the commercial sector, suddenly people realize are dual use. But dual use used to mean exactly the opposite. It's something that was invented in the defense sector, and then we let it trickle down, you know, in a controlled way yeah. into commercial applications uh, or international usage. And this, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that the U.S. and all the countries face, which is with more and more of the invention of things that are important to national security being invented in the, in the private sector, uh, then how do you deal with that relationship? You know, it's sort of like the horses are out of the barn by the time you recognize, oh my goodness, these really make a, an important uh, difference in, in the way we think about national security. Yeah, absolutely. I, a question I would frequently be asked when I was in the Pentagon, I would have a couple companies you know, want to sell things to the department, but they point out we would be a very tiny fraction of their market. And if they sold to us, does it get slapped with an ITAR label and they can no longer sell to their major customers? And so that was, you know, a concern that I kept running across. And I think that that is going to be an escalating concern, you know, not a, a, a reducing concern. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. If, if I can switch gears a little bit, you, you mentioned your work on, on quantum. And I'm wondering, could you sort of tell us what's your vision for the promise of quantum computing? Um, not only for the commercial world, but also for the Department of Defense and maybe the intelligence community. I think the first thing I'll say is that right now uh, there's a huge amount of hype about quantum computing and a lot of funding going in. Uh, and in my opinion, most people are poorly informed about what the genuine applications and benefits of quantum computers are likely to be. 
I do think that it's going to be an incredibly important technology. Um, but, but I'll say, you know, maybe let's just say there's three things we're pretty sure it's good at. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be good at cracking codes if you if they're the classical kind of, you know, RSA type codes. Um, it can be good at certain types of, you know, low level chemical modeling things that are computationally difficult. And the same is true for, you know, some issues around material science. But if you read the literature and, and you look at, you know, what a lot of companies are promising, it ranges from, you know, balancing your portfolio risk if you're a bank to, uh, you know, just the artificial intelligence and other things. And I'd say, you know, I'm personally, uh, and I think my colleagues at Microsoft are much more skeptical about whether we're going to see real application in those other areas. I think the other big issue is most people uh, have pretty significantly underestimated how big a com quantum computer in terms of number of physical qubits that'll be required, how big those machines are going to have to be to get into the realm of doing useful work. And that's why even now, 16 years ago, when Microsoft's program was started, you know, we took an unorthodox approach, which was to look for a, a completely novel form of qubit because we were, even then, worried about scaling. Uh, if you look at it right now, most places are focused on taking a qubit they understand and just trying to make it work better. Uh, but none of those seem to have a, a lot of promise toward building a, a really large scale machine. So I think there's a lot of work yet to be done. Um, but even if it turned out it only worked for the three things I mentioned, you know, the world is going to have to come to grips with the implications for current encryption. Uh, and, that, and what that really means is we need an accelerated transition to uh, post-quantum cryptography. And, you know, we started the work on that at Microsoft and other places uh, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, we're, we're down to, you know, NIST selecting a few finalist candidates in the next year or so. I personally think that, you know, that needs to be accelerated. And, I think that this is something that the defense sector needs to really focus on. If you look at, you know, how much effort it's taken, and I know because I remember doing it at Microsoft, you know, when we had to change the, you know, previous encryption standards, you know, and purge all the old ones, you know, it's a, it's a significant effort. And, you know, that was years ago, and now it's going to be even more difficult. We have more devices that are all connected that are not readily maintained, for example, and, and a lot of data that's now been collected that there's no real good practice for going back and uh, re-encrypting it in some way to protect it. So I think these are areas that the national security sector really needs to focus more on in the short term, even though the quantum computers haven't arrived yet, you, you're gonna have to do these protection steps earlier uh, to be safe. Uh, I think uh, if the other two things come to pass, though, it represents a huge opportunity because almost everything that, that mankind, you know, does and has done over the years is we build stuff and then we benefit from what we build. And if we can have designer chemicals and designer materials, you know, I think it represents an opportunity to redo 
everything that, that we've ever done from a, as, a, as a society in building things. And whether the purpose of that is to, you know, make, make things so that they, uh, you know, are, are more friendly from a climate point of view or solve climate problems more directly. In, in the end, if you can reduce it to a chemi chemistry problem or a, like a catalysis problem or to some type of special materials problem, then I think that's where the real impact of these machines is going to be felt. And, and of course, that would imply a lot of opportunity in the defense sector. Yeah, absolutely. On, you know, the question I always wonder about cryptography is, I think, is, as, as I very much agree with you, that um, can have an impact on existing, existing codes, but a if we're clever, we come up with cryptographic screens, schemes that are no longer easily uh, uh, breakable. Um, of course, our adversaries are going to be doing the same thing. It seems to me sure. we've got this narrow window where, where well, we, that, where, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of why I, personally, I don't think that the cryptography thing is going to be the big thing because, you know, the people who are paying attention will take steps early to prevent it. I mean, it reminds me back of the old Y2K problem, you know, where, you know, where the dates didn't roll over correctly because most people just encoded them as two digits because, you know, they didn't think about, oh, my goodness, when when the millennium rolls over, you know, <laughs> or, or the century rolls over, what happens now? And but we got the whole world got focused on that, uh, you know, and patches were applied and, and it was a non-event. I think this is like that on steroids. You know, there's it, just a lot more residue of decades now of, of encrypting things and now storing them at scale. And that was never possible before. So I do think it's a, it's a real challenge. But at the end of the day, I think there will be post-quantum cryptography. You know, what, you know, I don't know whether even calling it post-quantum is the right thing to do or not. I mean, I don't know myself that any of these things have ever yet been proven to be uncrackable by a quantum computer at some arbitrary scale. But it doesn't matter because cryptography is all about a work factor. You're just trying to make it take long enough or require a big enough machine that, you know, it, it doesn't happen at the drop of a hat, uh, you know, on every single thing. And, uh, and it's pretty yeah. clear that we can increase the work factor, even for a quantum computer, substantially and buy right. ourselves some time. How much time? We don't know. Uh, but, you know, I think we need to start buying that time and thinking about the things, whether it's commercial, you know, or trade secret or, you know, national security information, you know, how that stuff gets assessed and, and safeguarded uh, again. Uh, and determine whether or not, you know, there's any chance it was pilfered. I mean, one of the, the problems of so much stuff being recorded and, and high bandwidth interconnections is when bad guys uh, come and, and borrow your data, you know, they don't give it back for re-encryption later. Uh, right. And so, you know, you really have to be very careful to think through, you know, what's lost already. And, and you know, it's just a question of when, when the cryptographic... Uh, facilities exist to, to decode that and and then thinking about what the implication of those losses are. I don't think it's that different than issues that people in the in the military or the Pentagon or defense sector have always had to think about, which is, you know, when I have an asset, you know, and I try to protect it, but I lose it, what are the implications of losing it? You know, if I have a if I have a fancy airplane 
and I fly it in hostile environments, and then I try to, you know, create a, a way to destroy it so that it doesn't get captured. Sometimes that doesn't work, and your yeah. your precious asset gets gets lost. And so I don't think this is that different. It's just going to happen at a bigger scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm kind of given given your 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 work looking frankly internationally. Um, What's your assessment? Where do you think the United States is compared to our peer competitors and potential adversaries in the quantum area? Oh, in quantum, I still think that the U.S. is is the leader in quantum uh, in terms of at least if you count the number of programs that are investing substantially, you know, to get there. Of course, you know. It, it, Whatever the government's doing itself in this regard is opaque to me and everybody else at this point. Uh, but uh, but I think that, that the U.S. programs, at least on the commercial side, are world leading. Now that said, you know, many other governments want to try to clone this kind of work. I mean, obviously, China has made a very public commitment to the importance of quantum all the way up to the, you know, to, to the president. Uh, and, you know, they are putting a lot of money toward it. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I still see most of their work as derivative of stuff that was done in the West writ large, not just in the United States. Uh, when that changes, you know, it's very hard to predict. But, uh, but I, th I think right now the U.S. still probably has a lead. And, and making sure we maintain that lead was actually was one of the reasons that that our emerging technologies institute is very much focused on on quantum as well as one of our main topics. Um, so let me let me switch gears a little bit again. Um, so I know you, you've 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 thought a lot about America's economic future, the implications of uh, information technology in that. Um, what 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 are your what are your thoughts on, on what we need to do as a nation to make sure that we continue to lead in information technologies writ large? Well, I think the most profound change that's coming, you know, in computation is the emergence of artificial intelligence at hyperscale. Um, you know, I'm, one of the companies I'm involved with uh, well, is sort of Microsoft and OpenAI in that regard. Uh, and, you know, they're one of the few places in the world that really has a focus on artificial general intelligence. So, you know, here the goal is not just to build bigger and bigger machine learning models, uh, which I think is what most people end up calling AI these days, uh, but to actually build machines that are generally intelligent. And, you know, it's hard to tell at what rate, you know, that's going to happen, but I'm personally quite optimistic that it is going to happen and probably happen at a speed that, that surprises people. Um, when, as that occurs, uh, I think, and even, even what we see happening these days with the few very, very large models, it, it just shows that the ability for machines to make discoveries even in scientific terms that have eluded humans, I think is clearly in the cards. And this is one of the things I don't think most people have really stopped to think about almost all the things we've done with computing vis-a-vis, -vis, I'll say, science and engineering in the past was to just create a tool that helped humans make discoveries or do, you know, better designs or, 
you know, investigate, you know, certain problems. Uh, but, but they were always tools to help the human. I think for the first time, we're getting to the point, even now, where we can train polymathic machines uh, in specific combinations of domains, and that, that those machines, in, the, in, in their ability to both ingest detailed information and to make this decisions or discoveries across those domains, integrating across those domains, uh, hence the polymathic idea, you know, it, it exceeds what humans can do. And that time is actually now. It's not some dreamy thing in the future. But when you get to that point, it forces an inversion in the relationship of the humans to the machines in terms of the pursuit of, of whatever the question is. So whether you're trying to make a scientific discovery in, you know, in biology or physics. I think you can see this, for example, in you know, the work uh, uh, the, the DeepMind people published on protein folding, you know, where the best humans in the world for decades had tried to figure out how, you, how proteins would fold uh, based on a DNA spec. And, and you know, they never really got very close. And so despite that huge collaborative, even competitive effort, you know, didn't, they weren't getting there. And then you took this artificial intelligence approach and, and showed it, you know, what some folded proteins looked like and, and very carefully constructed thing and realized somehow that machine was able to understand, I'll put that in quotes, you know, why do proteins fold the way they fold? And given a, another one could then make a prediction and, you know, People generally think that that's now a solved problem, sort of in two iterations of that approach by the DeepMind people. And I think that that's just a harbinger of what's going to happen over and over and over again in almost every field of engineering and science. But if you look at most places, they're still stuck on the old path, which is, I'm just making this model so it can help me do something better. And I think you know, it's going to be critically important for people uh, to make the leap to say, no, no, we now have to assemble our best and brightest in order to train th that polymathic element of the machine such that it can actually do the integration in the high dimensional space that produces an answer that no human or small set of humans will be able to right. do and themselves. That, that's going to have some obviously profound implications for national defense as well. Um, I, I would often Correct. encounter the, the discussion about AI, introducing AI to the battlefield, and often as the helper, the, you know, the, 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 loyal, the loyal wingman, yeah, the, right. the AI airplane that flies, but you still got the human, yeah. the, the, the human-led uh, 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 aircraft. And, and I personally, you know, my view is it doesn't matter whether you're trying to solve a science problem, make a discovery somewhere, or are trying to, to go fly an airplane better. You know, each of these things is a high-dimensional problem, and uh, and people have sort of reserved for humans the, the the idea that well they can operate in these high-dimensional spaces better, but in a world of high-speed, high-resolution data, you know, humans are actually just I/O limited. You know, the only high-bandwidth input system yeah. we have is vision. Uh, and we don't have really a high bandwidth output system yeah. at all. And our vision system only yeah. deals at the conceptual level. 
So, you know, like I'm very involved in biology and medicine. And, you know, if I want to, if I go up to you, Mark, and say, hey, I'd really like to, you know, have you conclude some things. Here's my proteome. You know, it's a, it's just a set of numbers, you know, maybe, you know, today it's 10,000 floating point numbers. All right, I'll give you those 10. It's only 10,000. That's yeah. tiny compared to your genome. All right. But hey, you know, that that's that's a good proxy for all of my physical systems. Please tell me if I'm going to have a heart attack next week. All right. Well, I mean, you know, you'd stare at that and say, wow, man, I, like, yeah. I can't remember those 10,000 floating point yeah. numbers. How the hell can I figure that out? The machine, on the other hand, happily ingests the 10,000 and, and many, many times that. It remembers every number, you know, and the details of every number. And, and therefore, its ability to take where the, where the details matter, the machine just has an inherent advantage over the human, at, both at, in speed and in accuracy. And so uh, it's these reasons that make me think that if you don't make this leap to thinking that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm the trainer of that thing. It's not my wingman. All right. And, and once I've trained it, it's just going to be better than I am. Like full stop, better. And so, you know, you see examples of this, at least in the publicly reported stories of, you know, the Air Force, you know, right. doing dogfights with, with, you know, jets flown by machine learning algorithms. And, you know, they beat the, yeah. they beat yeah. the aces every time. I mean, it's no different than, you know, the, the machines beating the people in, in Go or chess or checkers. I mean, you know, it's just the game is getting more and more high dimensional. Uh, but in many of these cases, it's also got a lot of data that, that's got to be crunched in real time to, to know what the best thing to do is. And I think all of these things are just going to supersede what humans are good at. So from a defense point of view, I mean, I know this is, it's very difficult because, you know, whether it's sort of ethics or philosophy, you know, uh, the, the question of, you know, how do you trust the machine? You know, I've got my own thoughts about how that ultimately has to go. Uh, but it, I think if you, if you overly constrain your willingness to deploy these machines, whether it's in scientific discovery, operating your factory or flying your airplane, you know, you will lose because somebody else will yeah. not no, I, have that constraint. So, so on, a, on, a, on a much more primitive level, I, I spent much of my research career on, on aerospace vehicle optimization. And you would often find, you know, you, you present an objective function, you run an optimizer, and it will go in a design direction that the human would never have anticipated to the point where you're you're looking at the design and scratching your head and saying, how did I come up with that? And then you you bet you trace back and realize, ah, that's something that that I never would have thought of. But this makes a lot of sense. Well, and that's in a sense why I think one of the fundamental learnings, I'll say, in the in the high scale AI world is. The quicker you decide that the, that the goal is to train the machine by letting it explore the high dimensional space itself and you facilitate that as opposed to say, hey, no, no, I understand this space. I'm going to train you based on what the human understands, right? The sooner you let go of that, the more you make progress. I mean, when Google played, you know, did the Go thing the first time, AlphaGo, it did what everybody did. Thought it was right. You know, you, you looked at the, the world's best Go players and every recorded game they ever made and you trained it. And pretty soon, yep, you know, by learning from all of them, it could beat any one of them. But then they actually did AlphaGo Zero 
where they said, no, no, I'm just starting with the rules of the board and, and then I'm going to let the machine play itself for a month. All right. And indeed, exactly that happened. It discovered ways to play Go that humans collectively in 3,000 years never found. All right. And then that thing beat the one that beat the humans 100 to nothing. All right. So, I mean, it just sort of it gives you an idea like, okay, how much was there to learn that, that humans never got around to? And oh, by the way, it did it in a month. And I think that whether it's Go or flying or chemistry or whatever it might be, you know, the, this idea that, yeah, we talked about the human, the limitations of our IO. The other problem is, you know, we have this pretty slow clock rate because you know, we're a carbon-based system. And so, you know, you compare that to the silicon systems and you say, okay, you know, I've, I've got something like 10 to the 7th or 10 to the 8th difference in clock rate. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fast. That's a lot of difference. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, if, if that turns out to be a factor of how quickly you can explore a high-dimensional space, then, you know, it should be pretty obvious that the machine's going to try things in a relatively short time that humans never did. Yeah. And, uh, and I just think these are sort of profound uh, learnings over the last three or four years in the field of hyperscale AI that I don't think have permeated the way that, that most companies and probably the government uh, think about this stuff. Greg, I'm, I'm going to unfortunately let that be the last word because we're out of time for this segment. Uh, I could talk to you about this all, all day, uh, alas, and maybe we can get you back on the podcast. Thank you, but thank you so much for your insights okay. and, and for your, your observations. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation today. Great. Well, it's fun being here. And I'm happy to talk again at some point. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.